seems like you were just now setting your watch. Yeah. <laughs> Said memory full. I've felt that way before, haven't you? <laughs> Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's the fifth Sunday of Lent, and we're on a series on the penitential psalms. And today we're dealing what, with what is the most familiar of the penitential psalms, of the seven penitential psalms. This is Psalm 51, which if you were in at the Ash Wednesday service, we would have uh, read together uh, and heard. Um, it's also the appointed, as it turns out, it's also the appointed psalm for today in the church uh, around the world. So Christians around the world today are hearing uh, Psalm 51. It's a, it has a, Psalm 51 has a lot of uh, familiar uh, passages to it. Um, and it's, it has sort of woven itself into the life of the church. Uh, some of you know uh, that I was a few weeks ago, uh, one, of, one of the weeks I was absent, and uh, our able assistants uh, covered for me. Uh, I was up at the monastery uh, with my students up in southern Indiana. And if you don't know much about the monastic tradition, and most of us don't, um, understandably, I mean, why would you? Um, it's not most of you don't just wander into a monastery. Um, although if you did, it's, it's a pretty interesting place. Um, I know Dr. Denny, had, he, he wanders there. He, he has his own reasons, right? I think he likes, he likes the bourbon fudge, he tells me. Yeah, they, he likes the Trappists. Uh, they sell bourbon fudge in Gethsemane, Kentucky. Um, yeah, but I digress. Um, one, of, one of the beautiful traditions in, uh, in the monastic culture, uh, particularly, particularly in the Benedictine tradition and the Trappist, but others do it as well, is they have something called the Great Silence, um, which means after the evening prayer service, which is called Compline, uh, after you, you sing the psalms and you pray these psalms about going to, going to sleep and resting, um, you're silent for the rest of the night. Uh, you don't speak um, until what's called vigils, which is the, the first service of the day, and depending on which monastery you're at, that could start anywhere as early as 3.30 in the morning. Um, the monastery we go to, you get to sleep in quite a bit. It doesn't start until 5.30. <laughs> um, but the, the first words that they sing um, are the word, is a passage from Psalm 51. It's verse 15. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. So every day of their life, um, for hours they haven't said anything, and the first words of every day are that, a prayer that God would open your lips 
so that you could proclaim God's praise. It's a beautiful tradition. Um, and you can imagine how that might work on you over the course of your life if every day you prayed that God would open your lips. So that's, that's part of it. But the very opening to um, this notion of have mercy on me, O God, or O Lord, have mercy. Um, many of you know that, that that itself, which we sometimes call the Kyrie, because in Latin, it, that's the word for Lord. There's an ancient prayer, right? Kyrie eleison, which means Lord have mercy. And that has been set to music countless times um, in the history of the church. And it's this simple, simple prayer. Lord have mercy. And it's written to the liturgy of the church. And in, in some places around the world, particularly in the Eastern Church, but it's also in the Western Church, um, Christians have wondered, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Um, which is a pretty hard thing. You think, well, I have, I have work to do. I, I don't know how, what would it possibly mean uh, to pray without ceasing. And there's been lots of possible answers to that. Um, but part of the uh, tradition, particularly in the Eastern Church, um, has had what's called the Jesus Prayer. Uh, which was is a short prayer based partly um, on the, the tax collectors, the publicans' prayer in Luke 18. And it's, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But it's, it's, a, it's a plead for mercy. Um, and, and Christians throughout the years, and it can come in lots of different forms. I mean, it can be really beautiful. You can use it as what's sometimes called a, a breath prayer, um, which means that when you sort of inhale, say, you can sort of on the inhale, you can say, Lord or Jesus, mercy. Jesus, mercy. Jesus, mercy. And people have found over time that you can actually pray with your breath that way. Right? And it's, it's also kind of beautifully theologically that you're sort of inhaling, like bringing in Jesus into your life, and you are breathing out mercy. Right? You're inhaling mercy too with Jesus, but you're also exhaling mercy. Right? So I'm not just receiving mercy through Jesus, but I'm also exhaling into my life and my relationships mercy. So I just mentioned that because... Um, this psalm and this tradition of, of God's mercy, Lord have mercy, um, is not just an idea in, in Christianity, but it has affected the, the worship and prayer life uh, of the church deeply. And so I just thought I would start with that uh, today. So Psalm 51 um, in your, in your Bible, if you're looking at that, there are superscriptions there, um, which came later um, when the Psalms were edited. And this particular Psalm um, is attributed to David at a particular time um, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I'm assuming most of you remember that 
sordid tale, right? Uh, it's not David's um, best chapter of his life, right, to say the least. Uh, that his that his adultery actually leads to murder, right? Um, and so, um, so that so the church has sort of thought of this as um, a kind of appropriate. If you, if you need a setting for like what kind of setting, it's this kind of deep anguish uh, that David is feeling. Um, when he comes after Nathan uh, has brought him face to face with his own waywardness. So let's, let's read this. It's, they're familiar words, and that's always the hardest ones to look at, I think. Um, as I've been studying this, I was just reminded how easy it is to think you know what's going on in such a beautiful psalm that this language can kind of put you to sleep. But um, it is a beautiful psalm, which is one of the reasons we use it. Um, but I, I hope that there's something new in it for us today. So let's read, uh, I think we'll read, let's just read the first 15 verses for now. We, we, we talked about verse 15. Let's just read those for now and then we'll see, we'll see how far we get. This is, this is not going to be 18 weeks on Psalm 51. <laughs> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We've mentioned the last couple weeks a little bit about laments and the sort of varieties of laments and the kind of, of boldness in the lament tradition of the kind of chutzpah uh, that the 
the Jewish people had and the kind of permission giving that the Psalms offer us uh, to bring all of what we're feeling, um, our confusion, our frustration, our anger, our rage. Um, and here, um, and last week we talked about, you know, even, even the laments can become accusatory of God, right? Like, why are you asleep? Like, wake up. Like, which most of us can't imagine saying to God. Um, and so there's always this, these sort of imperatives, like, you know, calling out God to do something, which most of us, um, I don't know, I kind of imagine myself more times than not kind of being a little bit mealy-mouthed, right? Sort of mumbling, like, you know, if you could, like, if you got a spare minute and you don't mind, it wouldn't be too much trouble um, if you could maybe um, look down sort of this direction and, um, you know, if you could do, yeah, that'd be, be, be nice, but, you know, if, if you can't, it's okay. Right? I mean, that's, um, I think it's easy to sort of see yourself that way, but we said part of the power of this, the, the tradition of the Psalter um, and, and the laments um, is this, this deep sense that the laments are an act of faith just in bringing, bringing these concerns, bringing all of us to God, trusting in God's care for us, that that is an act of trust, um, more so than, than being guarded as if maybe our relationship with God, maybe we can't handle this. And so, but this week, um, it's not so much, um, you know, crying, it's not, a, it's not a, a psalm that asks God to wake up or to, uh, to take care of our enemies. Here, the cry of the, of the psalmist is, is about asking God to address this deep sense of uncleanness this deep sense for needing God to act definitively to deal with my sin. Um, and it's there, the, the language isn't any more intense in, in asking God to act, right? If there's still these imperatives, you know, but it just begins right from the very beginning. Um, and, and the first things to notice that's so easy to miss here in these first uh, couple of verses, let's, let's look at the first two verses and listen to what the psalmist is saying. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, or actually it's the same word, abundantly, wash me abundantly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So there's sort of three, three imperatives there. Have, have mercy on me, you'll be gracious to me, wash me, blot out my transgressions, 
wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from sin. But notice that they're also rooted in God's very character, right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Um, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. So calling God to be gracious, to lean into that sort of covenantal love that we've been talking about, this, this peculiar, almost untranslatable uh, Hebrew notion of God's covenant love, this steadfast love, that you could count on because it was rooted in God's, not just God's character, but God's, God's promise uh, to Israel to bind God's very self to Israel. Um, act according to that, right? It's begging God to act according to that, according to your abundant mercy. And typical, I mean, this is, this is Hebrew poetry. And so using these different kinds of, of words um, to talk about our, our sin. And we mentioned, because it's Lent, um, you know, all these, all these weeks of Lent, I, I suppose, I don't know, I don't, I'm just, I do this once in a while because I don't remember. How many of you grew up in traditions that did not celebrate, really didn't pay much attention because you didn't, that's, not, that's the wrong way of putting it. Um, you didn't know anything about the liturgical calendar other than you knew there was Christmas and you knew there was Easter, but Lent, Advent were not celebrated in your churches because you didn't know about it. This is me. Um, so about half, that's about what I thought, but I wasn't really sure. Um, I mean, Lent, Lent's kind of a bummer. <laughs> right? I mean, in a, let's just be honest. In a culture like ours, I mean, who wants to spend six or seven weeks talking about sin? I mean, I don't want to talk about it at all. I certainly don't want to spend six or seven weeks. I mean, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a house that I still remember. You know, I think my father had, you know. He didn't have a lot of books in the house, but he had a few books, you know. This, this was the days of, you know, like Norman Vincent Peale, right? Positive thinking. Um, I mean, this is just so negative. Um, I mean, who wants to talk about sin? Um, I mean, we don't even... I mean, we have lots of people around us, myself included. I mean, I don't, I don't like, I don't like to, I don't even like to admit when I'm wrong. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. In theory, I mean, if, if it, it would, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if there came a time when I had to admit it, I would not want to. Right? Yeah. If there should come a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure of that. Um, but that, I mean, that's... In our culture, I mean, even mistakes are made in the passive voice. Right? How many times have we heard politicians of every stripe? Right? This is, this is not the purview of any particular party. 
mistakes were made. Right? Mistakes were made. Um, that mistakes are is the closest we can get to talking about sin in our culture. Um, but mistakes, I mean, when I, you know, if I'm doing a calculation, you know, I go, I'm going to the bank and I'm filling out my, you know, deposit slip, and the lovely person teller tells me that. I've added wrong, right? That's a mistake, right? Like, I, I calculated wrong. And, and that's, that's the best we can do in our culture. Like, well, I just made a mistake, right? I made a wrong calculation. That's not sin. I mean, I mean, the words that the Hebrew uses here, I don't want to make too much of the difference because it's poetry, so they're, they're trying to kind of, um, you know, pile up the different kind of language that they had available to them. Um, but they had, you know, languages about, you know, transgressions. We don't use that. What's a transgression? Um, e even our... You know, even our English language Bibles sort of soften it. I mean, a transgression, you know, is, is rebelliousness. Okay? It means I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, and it'll be a cold day if I do it. <laughs> okay? That's not a mistake. Okay? That's not a mistake. It's absolute rebelliousness. Transgression is a rebe willful rebelliousness. And what we're trying to remind ourselves in this season of Lent, and what, if we'll allow it, the psalmists are trying to remind us, is each of us has at least a part of us, if we're honest, that is in rebellion against God and the ways of God. We're not just making mistakes. We're not just coming before God in Lent or any other time of the year when we're having that corporate confession of sin. We're not just confessing our mistakes. Sorry, God, you know, we just, you know, we just made a little calculation error. No, we are in rebellion against God and the ways of God, if we're honest. Maybe not entirely, but there are places in our lives when we know what God desires of, we know what Jesus and the way of Jesus demands of us, and it's like, no, not doing that. So that's transgressions. Phil. Yes, God. <laughs> Did I get that wrong? <laughs> no, you were right on target, but... Thank you. In this song, yes. I'm reading it. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. What? I've never known the difference. I thought they were the same, and they may be, this just may be repetition, between iniquity and sin. Yeah. Is there any difference? 
I'm going right there. <laughs> there three... I'm ahead of you? Always. <laughs> Always. Yeah. There are three different words translated here, and the psalmist is sort of piling them up. And again, I'm not trying to make too heavy a distinction as if they mean it, but they had different languages because there's different ways to sin, right? Um, so yes, transgressions is kind of rebelliousness, if you will. Um, and then the second word the psalmist uses, our translation, is iniquities. And again, it's a lovely word, but whoever uses that? I mean, when's the last time you told your child or your grandchild, please turn from your iniquities? <laughs> I mean, who would know what you're talking about? Say what? Yeah, say what? They wouldn't even they wouldn't even hear you, right? Is this is this iniquity? Turn from my Google the word. Yeah. But iniquity can mean a couple different things. I mean, the word that we translate iniquity. Um, part of it part of it means uh, what we might call uh, waywardness, which is again, it's not entirely different from rebellion, but it's it's a different image. Um, it's it's like coming to a fork in the road, and you know which way you're supposed to go, and you take the other way. Right? You're you're wayward. Um, but it also has this meaning of twisted. Um, that somehow. Our lives are, are twisted, deformed. Um, it's been a while, but maybe I, I think there was a time in our culture where this was kind of used colloquially, right? For like something's really off. Someone would say, wow, that's really twisted. Um, and, and that gets close in some ways to what's being, like, that's, that's really not the way it's supposed to be. And, and there is a sense, right, that we as human beings, we are twisted, we're bent in a certain kind of way that's not our full humanity. Um, and it's, and again, it's, it's something that we're responsible for. And then the last word that's used in these opening two words is the word, the word that's translated as sin. Okay, so we have transgression, iniquity, sin. And again, it's poetry just trying to get us to see the kind of the depth of our sin. And sin, here the image, as you probably heard, is this notion of falling short. Uh, falling short. But it's not the kind of falling short where um, you're trying your very best, um, but you still just don't pull it off. Some churches use debts and debtors. Yeah, debts or debtors. Yeah, so they're, they're also sort of economic metaphors in Scripture as well. Um, so even the psalm doesn't exhaust the whole uh, vocabulary that Scripture has around sin. Um, there's lots of different ways of talking, and we need that just to, to kind of remind ourselves. Um, so we can imagine falling short. Um, 
the, the Vols fell short last night, and we could argue about whether even they were doing the best they could. <laughs> um, but the good news is, well, I don't know if it's good news or not. I mean, somebody asked me from out of state if uh, somebody who knows I teach this class is like, will, will people be really depressed after they after the Vols got put out of the tournament? And I said, it, it's really a football state. You know, I, I don't know that anybody's going to be up all night really worried about the basketball team. <laughs> Not could be wrong about that, but uh, my hunch is you all slept fine. Um, but again, this kind of falling short is not about like I tried the best I could, but I still fell short. I mean, we've all been we've all been in that kind of situation where you tried to do a task, a job, you tried to do something, and it still didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Right? But now this is the kind of falling short that we're responsible for. It's not it's not just a I gave my best shot, but I still fell short. It's a, it's a different kind of falling short where. No, it's, I'm really responsible for this. I'm really um, not, I didn't, I'm not living into God's best for me, and I'm responsible. So all, all this language um, has deep, has the deep notion of responsibility in it. And the fact that the psalmist begins there with this, this clear acknowledgement that these aren't things that happened to the psalmist. Right? He's not just, you know, the uh, he he's not just the uh, the product of his circumstances. Um, but but he has made choices for which he's responsible, and it has uh, left. A stain. This is this is the other image that's important for this psalm. That somehow um, he's reaching for this language of being stained. That the sin has left a a stain on his very being, and and he knows God is the only one who can wash him clean. He he really needs this cleansing. Um, that, that he's incapable of doing. So have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, right, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Then he goes on to, to say, why it's necessary for God to do all that. For I know my transgressions. He's going to use this language again. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. So, the author is clearly aware that even though He's calling for God to be merciful at the very beginning. He knows that God doesn't have to be in the sense that he, he deserves whatever punishment he has coming to him. Right? Um, he understands that. 
So he's holding in tension the fact that he's, he's calling on God's steadfast love, covenant love, calling on this God because this God is clearly merciful. Um, this is the ancient tradition right, that Israel has uh, of who this God is. This God's a God of compassion and mercy. And yet he's also aware that he can't presume on that. He's trying to say, look, I, I understand. I don't deserve this. Right? Anything, any punishment that's coming to me, I, I deserve. I deserve. But I'm asking you to wash me and make me clean. And here in po poetic fashion, he says, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. Um, and this is one of those verses where if you can, a lot of people over the history of the church um, have used this to sort of justify certain understandings of original sin. Um, I always think it's dangerous myself to sort of create a whole doctrine around a line of poetry myself. Um, I really just think the author here uh, was not trying to make a theological argument about the origin of sin so much as just trying to talk about the pervasiveness of sin in his life. Um, that while even though the the, uh, the psalm itself, without the superscription, doesn't give us any idea what it was. All right, And the superscription is not part of the, the psalm, right? So, um, and, and we said last week that's part of the power of the psalms, is that they rarely state exactly what's going on so that we can use them in our own context. Um, so the author's talking about, you know, clearly has something on his mind that has gripped him, brought him likely to his knees, to his face, to beg for God's cleansing power. But he's also trying to say, you know, that this goes deep in who I am. Um, my sinfulness isn't just an occasional thing, but it goes pretty deep in who I am, all the way back to my beginnings. And so this notion that somehow uh, sin is deep in us. I'm not I'm not just a sinner, not the person who just occasionally sins. But there's a, there's a sense in which sin marks my life um, deeply. And, and I've, I've confessed in here before, that's, that's hard for us to admit. Um, because I want to look out into the world and find the people that look like really evildoers and compared to them, I think I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> right? And I, I assured myself most days, you know, I'm pretty good. And, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, and maybe the important point here and this is a theological point, and it's not in the psalm, but it's worth mentioning. That there might be a sense. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of our sense of our own sinfulness we could talk about being innate. How, how do people know that they're sinful? I think there, I'm sure there might be some of that, but I think at the end of the day, most of us have to be taught that we're sinners. I think there's a real sense of that. Um, and I think for Christians, what we want to say is, 
um, it's, it's likely that it's only when I actually stare into the face of Jesus who the church says in some mysterious way is dying for me, for you, for us that I see the depth of my sin. If I was a pretty good guy and I just needed just a little adjustment, it's hard to imagine God would have to go to such extreme degrees to redeem us. So I think maybe that we have to kind of, maybe you don't really come to see your sinfulness in all its ugliness. Uh, maybe I don't really come to see that until I really see what God has had to do to address it. Maybe in there, there that I first come to see the true depth of my sin that most of the days I work pretty hard not to see. <clears throat> Washing, cleansing, these are beautiful images. Notice that, notice that the, the psalmist doesn't ask for forgiveness, doesn't use that kind of language, although it's available. Right? We, we used it. It was in the psalm from last week. Notice here that it's, again, that there's, a, there's a sense that needs God to, to do something and, and the, this cleansing notion. I mean, uh, I, I was reminded of, of baptism here, of course. Right. I mean, why is it in the history of the church um, more times than not? I mean, why don't we just pronounce over people when they are um, somehow being initiated into the church? Why don't we just, you know, make the sign of the cross over them and say, "You're forgiven"? Why do we? Why do we wash them? <laughs> right? Why do we apply water to them? I mean, it seems. It doesn't seem really necessary at one level, but yet there's something powerful about this symbol of cleansing. Um, I thought a lot about this this week, and I think I'm right about this, although I don't trust my memory anymore. Um, but I'm pretty sure that when we were a child, we talked about Saturday being bath night, um, that, that was pretty literal in the sense that there were weeks that that might be the only bath I took. I hated it. I hated water, I have to confess. I, I've had a, a kind of phobia uh, since I was a child about water. I hated, I hated putting my head underneath the faucet in the bathtub. That scared me to death. I hated swimming lessons. I just hated water, right? Um, so I'm pretty sure that I was, wasn't even happy about taking a bath once a week. Um, now, in our culture, we're like obsessive compulsives. We're like Lady Macbeth. Right? We take multiple showers a day. Yeah? I mean, if I don't take at least one shower a day, I think like, I'm not presentable. I thought, oh, the days of being a child when my mother had to convince me, no, you're dirty. I'm getting the scrub brush. Right? Um, and I wonder if there's some kind of interesting inversion going on here. 
Um, you know, Jesus told the Pharisees, you know, stop worrying about cleaning the outside of the cup. Don't you know it's from within? That's really the problem. And it's interesting that that's where the psalmist goes, right? Uh, the psalmist is asking for all this washing to take place, to, to somehow scrub out this sin. But then the psalmist, notice, notice where the psalm goes. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's not enough to, it's not enough to scrub out this stain of sin. Because unless you change who I am on the inside, I'm just going to create more spots. Right? And this, this word, you know, create, is, is a pretty rare word in, in Scripture. It's, it's, and, it's, and God is, is the one who's only ever the one who does it. Um, this word is never, humans are, are never someone who create in this way. So however creative we think we are, this is not what the psalm is. It's calling on God to do something extraordinarily new and miraculous that only God can do. Unless you create in me a new, new heart. Now, how, many, how many times has that line been set to music? We sang a new one in the journey worship today. Right? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Right? Unless you create in me a clean heart, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's one of the few places, only a couple times in the Old Testament does the phrase Holy Spirit here. And here's not talking about like the second, third person of the Trinity. It's not talking about any of that. It's just talking about the, your Holy sanctifying spirit that only you can somehow transform me. Don't take that spirit away from me. And I'm reminded of, you know, the words in 2 Corinthians 5, um, which I, I wonder how much uh, Paul might be thinking of passages like this when he's writing where he says, you know, if, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, right? New creation. Um, in Christ, God can make us new. And so, there's this beautiful way in this psalm. Um, we don't need 18 weeks, but we probably need more than today. But just, I, I hope you're... Ca in, the opening, in the opening, say, nine verses, um, I think the, wor the words for sin are happen around a dozen times. Okay? The word sin is just pervasive. And, and, and God, the word God is only used once. Right? So the beginning, the psalm starts off with calling upon God to deal with all this sin that just seems to be pervasive. And, the, and where the psalm ends up, we talk about the psalms always moving to somewhere else. When you get to the end, uh, the language of sin is only there a couple of times. And, and God's name and the address of God is, is now like six times. So it's almost like in the psalm itself you see this transformation uh, from sin into God's spirit and God's power transforming us into something else. And we can only be transformed, uh, we can only be open to God's creative act. Um, I mean, it's hard for me, I mean, 
why would I ask for God to heal me? Why would I ask God to wash me? Why would I ask God to um, put back together my brokenness if, if I'm not even willing to admit I'm broken? Um, and so it's not, it's not unimportant that the psalmist starts where he starts, which is this, this deep recognition of our sinfulness. Um, but in the context that God is absolutely willing to address it, right? God is a God of mercy and compassion. Um, God will wash us clean, make us whiter than snow. But we have to be willing uh, to come to God humbly and address our waywardness. Let's pray. We give you thanks, O God, for this season of Lent. We confess, first of all, that we find it difficult to come before you and acknowledge our waywardness, uh, acknowledge our twisted character, our falling short, our rebellion. But we ask that we would see the need for that, that we would see your desire to heal us, to wash us clean, to create in us new hearts, creating us a willing spirit. May we, as we journey down the last week or so of this Lenten pilgrimage, may we throw ourselves upon your mercy. May we see being mindful of our sin as part of our healing. And may we lean heavily upon your mercy and your grace. Lord, have mercy. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen.